Welcome. We, we are so glad you guys are here. Thank you for coming. Um, and Dr. J is obviously not here to play for us today, but you may, if you're quiet, be able to hear the bagpipers who are out in our, uh, in our uh, courtyard. Our Children's Center is cele celebrating Irish American Heritage Month. And last week they celebrated with Irish dancing for St. Patrick's Day, and today they're celebrating with a bagpiper. And that's of course, we have to bring it full circle, obviously. There's no other way. Um, both of my children have gotten to, I've been kind of peeking on them. They can't, I don't want them to see me because they might throw a fit, but they, they are happy down there to listen. So we don't have a song this morning, but uh, Jay is on vacation, so we'll wish him um, a nice break. And as you know, Bob is still in Poland. He comes back tomorrow, from what I understand. We've gotten great reports, everything, every, they've been very safe, they've felt very secure. Um, they have been grateful to be there. I think they've really been able to see eyes wide open what's going on over there, how we can continue to pray for them. I know he'll be bringing back a couple of videos to show the congregation. In addition to his sermon on Sunday, he's taking a break from Hebrews for this next week just to kind of give an update and a recap of his, of his trip. So we're really looking forward to hearing from him, praying that he and Irina and Aaron have a safe trip back. Um, as I know, I'm sure they're I don't know time-wise when they're headed to the airport, but they'll be back tomorrow evening. So we're grateful um, that they've been able to do that. And they've been, yes, do you hear the bagpipes? Yeah. Yes, for our Irish American Heritage Month. Yes, we can sing along to the bagpipes. I know, I should have asked to bring them up here. When I found out Jay wasn't gonna be here, I was like, oh, should have gotten those bagpipers to come up here and we could have sang, sung Amazing Grace or something with them. But nevertheless, um, we, uh, a couple of announcements. One is you did not receive questions for next week. Um, Bob, I, I'm sure in Poland, didn't he's te he'll be back the next two weeks. You have two more after today of our pastor's Bible study, and he's planning to teach next week. He told me I didn't have to worry about questions for next week. So I trusted him, and I'm sure it just got lost in the Poland email. So um, <laughs> Sheila apologizes that they're not here for you. Hopefully, if you're in a small group, you'll get those before the end of the weekend, so you can look at them before next Thursday. You'll have, sure you'll surely you'll have plenty of time to to look through them. Um, and I I do apologize for the amount of questions that you all received for today. We have nine chapters to cover, and we have a lot. It's a lot of information, but really, it's fascinating stuff. So. Um, um, we'll just kind of try to plug right through it. It's, it's this, these chapters are very discouraging for people to read because so many of the towns, the cities, the boundaries in this new land that they're going to be a part of, we don't know how to pronounce them. A lot of words that are gibberish um, and you get lost in it. I mean, it's just when people start to read the Bible in a year, they get stuck at Leviticus, they get stuck again in Deuteronomy, often they get stuck in this section of Joshua and then they get stuck again in like first and second chronicles. So it's difficult. My encouragement to you all is to let your eyes fall upon the words. You don't know, you know, we read in our brains. We don't necessarily read out loud. We don't know how to pronounce them. That's okay. Give yourself some grace knowing that the Holy Spirit is working despite you knowing how to pronounce all those words. But not just to skip a whole section to go, oh, that's all gibberish. I don't know it. Let me move past it. Because there are nuggets within that you'd be surprised uh, to miss if you just kind of chalked it up to, I don't know those words, let me move on to the next one. And we'll point out some of those nuggets for you today. Um, 
So I'm going to begin with a word of prayer, and then we will jump right into the text. Uh, one more announcement before I do that. Um, there is a poster right here. There's a concert. Our Sanctuary Choir, Orchestra, and Soloists are performing. Um, is this okay, Ross? It flopping around? Y'all can hear me okay? Okay. Um, it's going to be April 1st. I got a sneak preview last night when we finished up Bible study here. I ran into the sanctuary. They were practicing and rehearsing in there. And it was so good. And it wasn't even the full orchestra yet. So it was just the singer. So Friday, April 1st, 7 p.m., free concert in the sanctuary. We hope you'll join us for that. It's going to be a really great uh, opportunity to just hear some, I mean, our music ministry is just fantastic. So I hope we got handbells. They're not playing there, but. Um, yes. Solo. I know. And, and Tom is stepping in. Uh-huh, right. Yes. Tom stepped in for a solo, and he did a beautiful job. So we're grateful to have such a wonderful ministry there. So mark your calendars for April 1st. Again, I apologize that we don't have the slides. I've got some wonderful maps if, that you can see after if you want. Um, I can send them to you, but I'll kind of draw a map on here. It won't be very good, so I apologize ahead of time. Um, but as you read this, when all the gobbledygook of words that you don't know, if you have a map sitting there, you can be like, oh, there's Kiryat Sefer. Oh, there's the little towns, and you can see the borders, and you can see each tribe, and it really does help bring it to life instead of it just being sort of black and white on the paper. So uh, sorry that we don't have that for you today, but I'll encourage you to look that up. So let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for such a gift this weather is, this day is. We, we don't take for granted each breath that we take, each morning that we wake, recognizing who you are, that you are our God that provides for us, um, gives us life, and that we are we are just blessed to be able to come together to study your word. We pray for all those children down there listening to this beautiful uh, bagpipe music, that they would come to know you in real ways. We pray that through this word today, our, we are transformed and that we do leave here different because of what we read and that you would be in our hearts and our minds, your spirit would work amongst us and that we would um, just glorify you through our time together. It is in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so we have been through quite a bit of Joshua so far. Um, last week, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the Gibeonite deception and how uh, the Gibeonites were trying to get a treaty with Israel and they conned them to get into it. Then last week, Bob talked about the day the sun st stood still and God sort of orchestrated it so that the Gibeonites would be protected during uh, more conquest and, and more battles and then there were more conquests. And so we are to the point now, finally, after 40 years of waiting, that the Israelites get to settle into their new lands. And again, like I said, this could be sort of boring if, if you didn't really dig into it, but it's actually quite fascinating how all of these tribes were given their specific lands. And so we're going to jump right in. I want you to open your Bibles to chapter 14 of Joshua, and we're going to kind of take it step by step. So a couple of themes that we've seen in the book of, of Joshua so far. Um, God's promises. God had, has promised since uh, to Moses since they left Egypt into the wilderness that they would get this land. God is faithful to his promises, and today we see the fulfillment of those promises. The second is Joshua's faithfulness. Joshua, this entire time, has led with a faithfulness beyond anything I could ever do, right? With strength, knowing that God would provide, knowing that they were going to face some challenges and that God would get them through. Um, and we see that the, the Canaanites... There was a fear in the Canaanites that as they looked to the Israelites to come into their land. These Canaanites worshipped false gods. Um, they, 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 uh, they 
had these traditions that were not honoring to the Lord of the Israelites. And so they were fearful of their land being taken. And the promise was that the Israelites were going to be able to take this land. So as we start with uh, chapter 14, we see this entire section is about dividing up the land for the 12 tribes of Israel. So I've written up the tribes here. Um, and a couple of things to note before we dive into the allotment of the tribes. So we have 12 tribes. I know these are hard to see. The red didn't really work, neither did the black. We need, we need new markers. We'll get some. Um, so Judah is going to be the largest area given. And we'll, I'll, when I draw the map, you'll see that. They're in the south. The tribe of Joseph, we don't really hear referred to as the tribe of Joseph. We more often hear the house of Joseph divided into two tribes, um, Ephraim and Manasseh. He had two sons, Joseph did. Remember, he was the one in Egypt um, that worked for Pharaoh. And so his two tribes are divided. So when we see Ephraim and Manasseh, that, that really is connected into one tribe, the tribe of Joseph. So we don't count those as extra tribes. Then we've got Gad, Reuben, Issachar, Naphtali, Dan, Benjamin, Asher, Zebulon, and Simeon. Twelfth tribe, Levi. We're going to see today that all of these tribes get an allotment of land. The Levites do not. And there's a very specific reason for that. They are the priests. And they are charged to show God to the people, to be a, an opportunity for people to access God where they are. So their cities are going to be strewn about in the area. So we'll get to that. But keep in mind, those are the tribes that are going to get land here. There's the ones that have been waiting for it. They've been expecting it. They've been hopeful for it this whole time. They've had to fight for it. They took Jericho. They took Ai, the Battle of Ai. Um, they have waited, and now the time has come for them to come into their land. So they say that the, it says in verse, in chapter 14, that in verse 2, their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. Okay, pause there. Why nine and one-half? There's 12. I thought there were 12. Well, we already know that Levi doesn't get a portion because they're the, the priests. Um, Earlier in Numbers, we see the promise of two and a half tribes that are going to be on the western side. So let's pretend this is our map here, sort of. Okay, let's pretend that Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee, or the Dead Sea, excuse me. So west of, this, of the Jordan River, they had come in from this way. This is the Canaanite territory that they were promised. West over here had already been given an area for two and a half of the tribes. I'm sorry, east. Thank you. Thank you. This is east, north, south, east, west. You got it. You got it. The eastern area, um, very important. That's very important to note. Um, half of Manasseh, half of, the ha half, of half of Joseph, right? Okay. Um, they were given a part. Gad and Reuben were all in the east. So these had already been promised to them. So before they crossed over the Jordan, back in J Joshua chapter 1, um, they were already promised this land here. And they were like, okay, kind of leave your people and your stuff here, but we still need you to come with us, um, these three two and a half tribes, into the promised land to help us fight. Send your men, send your warriors, because you're going to help us fight in here. But but this is your land. So they already knew what theirs was. They didn't, they didn't belong to this whole allotment deal. So the rest of them, the nine and a half left over, were going to be given land in the west. 
across the Jordan. Okay, so we keep that in mind, and we'll see that kind of play out here, especially at the end. We'll see kind of uh, some drama around that. So we know casting lots is something that we've heard a lot in Scripture. What is the one thing, when you hear about casting lots, what is the Scripture that comes to mind for you as the, one of the most famous ones that we know where people cast, casted lots? Does anybody? Jesus' crucifixion for his clothes, for his stuff, right? The remaining stuff. Um, that's a great one. Another one is in Acts when they're deciding on the 12th disciple to replace Judas. The first chapter of Acts, they're trying to figure out who's going to be that 12th disciple. They cast lots. So we've heard, it's, it's actually mentioned 70 times casting lots in the Old Testament. It's only mentioned seven times in the New Testament. So we see this as a very common practice to decide on certain things. Now, as a kid growing up with a brother, we often had to draw straws. Have you ever drawn straws, right? One's short, one's long, and you hide them kind of behind your hand, and you get to pick one, and if you draw the short straw, you don't get the prize, or you don't get to go first, or whatever it, it might be. It's all left up to, quote, chance, right? It's a game that does not involve skill or strategy. It's not anything that somebody can manipulate. It's not somebody, a game that someone can practice for. It's not something that somebody can cheat on. It's very luck-driven. However, casting lots in scripture was very devoted, apart from breaking up Jesus' stuff, uh, when he was on the cross, um, was very much a way to honor God's will, his sovereignty, his provision. God already knows who gets what land. So we're going to cast lots and God will show us through the lots who gets what land. It's not up to jo Joshua. It's not up to the leaders. It's not up to the Levites. It's literally up to, the, to God through the casting of lots. We don't know if it was um, flat stones that they threw. We don't know if it was sticks. We don't know exactly how it worked. But we do know that it happened, and it was a great way to sort of equally divide things up. Because imagine, you've been waiting all this time for your land. You're desperate to get into your, to your new land, and there's a lot of people involved. All these 12 tribes need their space. And it could get a little chaotic if not done well. Wait. I wanted the northern part. It had better forests. Oh, I wanted the desert in the south. Wait, they got bigger spot than I did. I didn't get enough. We could see that going a little bit tricky. So the casting lots was kind of a fair way to honor the Lord's sovereignty. We're gonna, it's going to be easy. We're going to cast these lots, and it's going to be fair in a sense. So just imagine what it would have been like to, again, having fought, have fought these battles, having been wandering around for all these years, ready to get your land, and having to sort of wait to see what the lots were going to say, right? It's a little bit, oh, I want to know, what's my land going to be? So we see that they cast lots, and then right after that, uh, chapter 14 goes into Caleb's inheritance. Okay, so chapter 6, we be, or verse 6, we begin to talk about Caleb's inheritance. What we remember about Caleb in Numbers is that Caleb was sent with the spies into uh, the Canaanite territory to look around and to bring back a report. Caleb and Joshua and other spies went, and they saw this land flowing with milk and honey. They saw, oh, it looks so beautiful. It's going to be so great. But almost everybody, all but Joshua and Caleb, came back and said, they're too strong. We can't fight them. They are a force to be reckoned with. And even though it looks great and beautiful, and I know God's promised it, I really don't think we should fight them. But Caleb and Joshua were faithful. They wholeheartedly trusted that God would provide for them, that God would make the way clear 
for them to go in and receive their new land, no matter what the forces that waited for them. So Caleb had faith that God would provide. And through his faithfulness, God said to Moses that Caleb would then get to pick his own inheritance, that he would get to sort of have his own special land as a part of the land of Judah. Caleb is a part of the tribe of Judah. So we'll remember that. So they're the first ones to get their allotment. But Caleb, they want to, uh, Josh, this, in Joshua, they address him separately and first. So in verse, uh, in verse 7, he says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. So he's remembering 45 years ago. Oh, I was sent to look at the land, and I came back with faithfulness about what was in my heart. And then he says, but my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly follow the Lord my God. Everyone else said, uh-uh, it looks too hard, but he followed the Lord. He knew the Lord would provide. Verse 9, and Moses swore on that day, saying, surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And verse 10, and now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. So he waits 45 years. He's faithful to the Lord the entire time. Now it's time for them to get their inheritances. And he's like, oh, remember what I did? I mean, he's, he's very humble about it. He's not pushy. He's saying, okay, I was faithful. I listened. I've been waiting 45 years. Here I am. I'm 85 years old. I'm ready to take the land. Okay, imagine being 85 years old. And you're ready to take the land. Don't forget, the Canaanites are still living there. They've made some big progress defeating the Canaanites, but they're still in the land. They still need to be driven out. And so he goes on to say in verse 11, I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. At 85 years old, 40 years, 45 years later, he's just as strong as he was when he was 40. He has got the strength of the Lord to help him push into his promised territory to conquer the, Israel, the Canaanites so that he might take his land that was promised to him. He is so faithful that God will give him the strength he needs, even at 85 years old, just as he was 40 years, 45 years ago, to take this land. So in verse 12, so now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Once again, wholehearted faith, a faith that goes beyond anything I've ever had to say, I'm 85. I know that God's going to provide for me. I'm ready to go fight these people, push them out of my land. And this was the Anakim were very strong fortified cities. It's a big, big area of land, and, they, and he went in and took it. So Joshua blesses him and says, go forth, um, take your inheritance. And he got Hebron, uh, was the name of the inheritance that Caleb got, and all the land had rest from war. So he was able to drive, his group, his people were able to drive the Canaanites out and have rest from war. We pick up a little bit again with Caleb in the middle of, verse, of chapter 15. Chapter 15 goes then into the allotment of Judah, all that the tribe of Judah gets. Again, Caleb's part of the tribe of Judah. And um, we see all the boundaries. Again, let your eyes rest on all the words, even if you can't pronounce them. You see where the boundaries are. Pull up a map next to it as you read it. You see, okay, on the east side this way, on the west side this way, up and down. And you can literally start to picture it when you're looking at the map, right? 
Um, and so we see then in verse 13, we pick up in verse 13 of chapter 15, we pick up again with Caleb. And it says, according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. And he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, whoever strikes Kiriath Sefer and captures it, to him will I give Aksa, my daughter, as wife. So he's making this proposal. He's like, okay, I need some help here. How about whoever can go in and drive out this remaining group, this Anak and his three sons, then I will give him my wife, Aksa. So this is important because the person that comes in next, um, the, the one that ends up marrying Aksa, is named Othiniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb. So basically Caleb's nephew, Caleb's brother's son, ends up driving these people out and, and Aksa is given as a wife. Othiniel comes up later in scripture as a leader, uh, as one of the great, not great, but uh, definitely somebody that steps up to lead. So we'll see his name later on. Um, when, when the daughter came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. Okay, it was not heard of for women to receive land in the Israelite tradition. It was very traditional for the men, the sons, the grandsons, the sons-in-law to receive the land. So for Aksa to ask, for her husband to ask her dad for some land was a pretty bold move. And what does Caleb do? Caleb should, according to tradition, probably say, no, we'll give it to your son, not uh, to, to your husband, not to you. But she goes forth, she asks, and he says to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing since you have given me the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So he gave her what she asked for, even though she was a woman. So that's a pretty bold statement. We're going to see more about women's inheritance in the next chapter. So Put your, put your pin in that. So then it continues on in verse 15, all the way through showing what cities went to Judah and how they were divided and all of that. At the end of, verse, of chapter 15, we see a, a verse, verse 63, that says this, but the Jebusites, those are the Canaanites, the ones that have been inheriting, or that in the land, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. So the, the intention of the Lord was that the Israelites would go in and literally drive all of the Canaanites out. The reason for that was that they didn't want a mixture of people. The Israelites worshiped the Lord their God, one Lord. All these Jebusites, Canaanites, all these people worshipped other gods, false gods. So they didn't want these people remaining to influence them poorly against the, their faithfulness to the Lord. And so the, the call of God was to drive out all those people. And we see here that some were left over. Some stayed behind. We're going to see that mentioned again in the next two chapters. We're going to talk about why, what happened with that and why they stayed behind. So put a pin in that. We'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep going there. Okay, so we see Judah's inheritance. Then in, in chapter 16, we now see uh, the allotment for the house of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. So remember, as we talked about, half of Manasseh was in the east. This is one half of Manasseh. 
over here. So we so Joseph's tribes had still, you know, half of three quarters of the tribe left to get land. So the rest of them end up kind of right around here on the western side. This is Joseph's land, Joseph's group. Um, and so 16 goes through sort of what was given where, the boundaries again, kind of look up those different areas and where they fit in. Um, Manasseh uh, was given a lot of land. It was, a, it was a big group. This was a lot of people. And so they were given the, the eastern and the western sides, and it was kind of a good chunk of land. But they, it was given as allotment uh, through the casting of lots, just as the other. So one thing to note about Manasseh here in verse 4 is that Manasseh's sons, son, sons, 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 sons. So that would be great, great grandson. I think that's right. Um, didn't have any daughters. I mean, didn't have any sons, only had daughters. So there were only women to pass down the rest of the land to. And so these people, they're going, well, in verse 4 it says, they approached Eleazar, the women, the daughters, approached Eleazar, the priest, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the leaders, and said, the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. Okay. We see, we actually, if we look back in Numbers, we see where the Lord commanded Moses to give these women, uh, it's Numbers 27, verses 1 through 5, to give these women land. Again, this went against all tradition, but Moses heard from God that these women would get their land. And so it says, um, let's see, so according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions, and it goes on to say kind of where, um, chapter, uh, verse 6, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. Wow, this is big news. Again, you would, easy to skip over this, miss this little nugget in the midst of, okay, uh, Zelophad and Hefer and Gilead and Machir and Manasseh, uh, and you kind of just skip down and you're, let your eyes kind of gaze over and you get to the next chapter because it's too much to read through. But this is a really important point to make, that these women were given land, inheritance, very against tradition. Um, but Joshua was carrying out the law that he'd heard from Moses. Moses had given by God um, to add this law that would help other women in similar circumstances to inherit property as well. And so it was kind of a, an idea of this new, this new society had a different sort of justice system, um, a different sort of idea that it goes against tradition a little bit. It pushes a little bit of those boundaries um, and in order to give these women their land. So that's, that's a pretty big thing. We continue to look at this, tri this house of Joshua, I mean J Joseph, excuse me. Joseph's response to their land was a little bit fussy, I would say. If we just talked about Caleb. We talked about how Caleb was eager. He knew that God would give him his land. Even at 85, get me into my land. We're going to go take it. He was grateful and ready and just so um, happy to do whatever the Lord asked him to do. And now we get to these people of Joseph, and they're a little bit more lazy. In verse 14, it says, then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua. Okay, so they'd already been given their land, Ephraim and Manasseh, all the boundaries, the, the girls got their land, all that stuff. And these people of Joseph say to Joshua, why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? So they're kind of like, well, we only got one lot? I thought, because we're so big and we have so many people, that we would get more land. And 
Verse 15, I love Joshua. Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, because the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. So here they are on the west side. Um, we've got that, the other half of Manasseh. Ephraim's kind of like down around here. Again, you can look at my maps before you go. They do a much better job of this than, than I. Up here, there's some, um, the Ephraim territory is very thin and skinny, and, but there's a lot of forest. There's a lot of hill country, what we would consider as Texans like the beautiful hill country, right? We want the hill country. We want the hill country. That's what I want. Yes, we'll clear it. We'll go and we'll settle it. But it was going to take a lot of effort. They would have had to clear the land. They would have had to get in there, and they would have had to sort of clear that forest in order to settle. And they were a little bit fussy about that. They didn't really want to do that. And so it continues on, and we see, um, I'm sorry, this is so loud. Um, so we see uh, the, the 16, the people of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us. <laughs> They probably didn't say it like that, but that's how I read it, right? Um, yet all the Canaanites who dwell in, in the plain have chariots of iron, but those in Bethsheen and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its furthest boundaries. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. So here they're sort of like, we don't want to clear the forest. And those Canaanites there, they have those chariots of iron, so we're not going to fight them. What a different response than Caleb. Caleb's like, I'm 85, I'm going. Let's go fight, right? He's confident, he's ready, he's trusting that the Lord will provide. And these guys are like, oh, we have to go clear it. And I don't want to fight. They have those iron chariots. Those are pretty big. They're very fortified. And I love Joshua's response. He's like, you're a big number. You, okay, we're giving you enough. You're going to have plenty. Just clear the land. You're going to be strong enough to fight these chariots. Go forth and do it. He doesn't give in and say, oh, okay, we'll give you another piece or we'll give you a little bit more. He doesn't because he, know he knows that God has already ordained where they're supposed to be. And so he just kind of challenges them and says, come on, you can do it. You're a big group. You're strong enough. You can clear the forest. You can clear out those Canaanites. So he pushes them a little bit, which I just love. And I love comparing the Caleb response to the response of uh, Ephraim and, and Manasseh. So that's an interesting point, again, not to miss. Um, so then we continue on, and we see the remaining seven tribes. So, so far, um, Judah and Caleb, Caleb within the tribe of Judah have, oh, these pins are terrible. Um, let's see if green works. So Judah has gotten there. Oh, green's nice. Um, we see that Joseph has gotten theirs. Remember, half is in, of Manasseh is in the west, half is in the east, and then the Ephraim um, is in the east. Uh, I messed it up again. Half is in the east, half is in the west, Ephraim is in the west. Um, Gad and Reuben, they were given theirs in the east before they crossed the Jordan. Now we've seen, now we have the rest of these. So we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Don't forget Levi, they don't get their land. So these are the, the next seven that get their land. So the, this next chapter, chapter 18, talks all about the different seven getting their allotments. But the beginning part of 18 talks about where they set up the tent of meeting. And this is important too. Um, verse one says, the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up a tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. So Shiloh is gonna be kind of north of the Dead Sea, uh, yeah, the Dead Sea, kind of right around there-ish. Um, this is the first place that the tent of meeting is set 
for a permanent place. It's been moving around. They were at Gilgal during all these fights. Um, they've, been, they've been, again, nomadic for all these years, waiting for their land. And finally, they're sort of setting up shop. And this is where the tabernacle is. This is where you go to encounter, the priests go to encounter the Lord. And it's a very centrally located place. It's central enough so that the eastern tribes and the western tribes can all gather there. So it's important to note that. And then he says, Joshua, to the rest of the tribes, the seven, the seven tribes left, the people of Israel, how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? So these last seven were dragging their feet just a little bit. Um, again, why? They've been waiting all this time to get to this land. They've been begging for it. Oh, we got to get out of the wilderness. we got to get in there. They've been promised it and told about it. And now they're like, eh, we don't really want to go in. Why is that? Right? Well, it could be, and I don't know for certain, but it could be that they're kind of in, they're nomadic. They're, they've, they've not known anything but being sort of trapped for 40 years. They, they didn't know anything other than sort of wandering around. And they kind of liked living off the Canaanites. The Canaanites had things established and they didn't have to do the work and they could kind of uh, benefit from what the Canaanites had established. And so they didn't, they were a little bit like dragging their feet. I would have been like, I want to get settled. I want to get all my stuff set up and I want to get my tents. And, you know, like, you know, you want to kind of like finally kind of get your space. But they were dragging their feet a little bit. So Joshua was kind of like, okay, come on, let's, let's move forward. So he asked that they, each of the seven tribes provide three men to go and look around the territory and divide up the rest of it by drawing sort of a description of the land. So three of each went around and they looked at the land and they saw all the different seven spots and sort of drew boundaries. Remember, they didn't have a map like us showing there's Dan, there's Naphtali. They had to kind of, it was just empty land and they are empty. The Canaanites were there, but they had to sort of figure it out on their own. And so they went out, they drew their descriptions and this is all described in the beginning of 18. And they came back to Joshua, and then Joshua, according to those descriptions of the land and the boundaries, cast lots once again for those seven to encounter their land. So then he gives them all their land, and it shows um, through the rest of chapter 18 and all of 19, Benjamin, Simeon, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and uh, Dan. Okay, one note about a couple of these. I'm not going to go through each one because it's just too many, but Benjamin is very interesting. Benjamin gets a very small portion of land right about here. And eventually, again, remember this is Judah, this big area down here is all Judah. Then all the other seven, Gad, uh, Gad and, no, no, Gad's over here. Don't forget, sorry, Gad's over there. But Issachar, Naphtali, Dan, all the rest of them are kind of up around here. But Benjamin has this little sliver. And it turns up that when we see eventually the northern and southern kingdoms, Benjamin is placed as a buffer, okay? So he, so that tribe, he, he's not there anymore, but Benjamin's tribe is sort of as a buffer between the northern and southern kingdoms. So that's sort of interesting to note when we get farther along. I know this study is only about Joshua. When you get farther along into the scripture and you see sort of that divide of the northern and southern kingdom. Also in Benjamin, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the Gibeonites. Gibeon happens to be right in Benjamin's territory right there. So um, they are adopting uh, this group that were not Israelites. They were, the Gibeons, Gibeonites were Canaanites that ended up getting a treaty with Israel like we talked about two weeks ago. So that's in their land. So it's a little interesting to note Benjamin. And then Simeon, the other interesting thing to note about Simeon, so all of this land south is Judah. And Simeon's land is like right in the middle. 
just splotch right down, right down in the center of it. Why? Well, in scripture, in the scripture, when they describe the inheritance of Simeon, it says, uh, verse nine of verse nine of chapter nineteen, the inheritance of the people of Simeon formed part of the territory of the people of Judah, because the portion of the people of Judah was too large for them. The people of Simeon obtained an inheritance in the midst of their inheritance. So this area was humongous. I mean, this is like a lot of desert. It's southern. Um, it's, they're probably more spread out, and they just didn't have enough people to cover all the land. So it's like, oh, there's a great spot right in the middle. Let's put Simeon there. Interesting, right? I mean, it, and imagine, okay, they're all in Shiloh at the tent of meeting, and they're all spread out to go look at the land. It would have taken days to go and survey the land, figure out where it is, where these, I mean, from there all the way down here, what? That's a, on foot? You know, I mean, that's a, that's a long time. When we read it, we're like, oh, great, great. You know, Natalie got that one. And, you know, it just feels like it all just sort of falls into place. But really, it would have taken a lot of planning, a lot of time, and a lot of sort of figuring it all out to get to those places. So another reason why they might not have been eager to settle, they were kind of enjoying just all being together in Shiloh and the tent of meeting were finally set up. I don't really know if I want to go all the way south down to my area. I'm, I'm okay here. So there could have been some, uh, some more reasons for their sort of delay. So the rest of 19 goes through all of those um, different areas, uh, all those different tribes. At the end of 19, we see the inheritance for Joshua. Joshua, the leader, the one that has led them into the, the promised land. Um, and he is a part of the tribe of Ephraim. So Ephraim was given their tribe earlier on. We already talked about that. They were the ones that kind of fussed about, well, we want the hill country. And we don't want to you know, clear the forest. Which is an interesting note. Somebody brought this up last night. That because Joshua was part of the tribe of Ephraim, it may have allowed them to think that they could complain a little bit to Joshua because he was one of them, right? We kind of feel better like complaining to somebody that we're family with. We, you know, we won't complain publicly, but we'll complain behind closed doors. So it could have been that they complained about it to him because they were part of the same tribe. Joshua gets his own inheritance, and that was foretold um, before he even took over. And so he gets his own plot of land within the area of Ephraim, and uh, by command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he had asked for, Timnath Sarah in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled it. So they had f finished to fight dividing the land. Phew, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of energy. There's a lot of chapters devoted to it, but we kind of, we give the overview there. Okay, the next thing that we'll talk about is this idea that the Canaanites were not pushed out fully. We saw it in 15, at the end of 15 in, in verse 63. We also see it in ver chapter 16, verse 10. It says, however, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. And then we see it again in 17 verses 12 to 13. It says, yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now, when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. As we talked about earlier, God's will was for all of the Canaanites to be driven out and this land to be solely for the people of God, only for the Israelites. We know that the Gibeonites kind of got their way in there through the treaty because they conned the Israelites. Um, but these others that were left, the Jebusites, the, uh, the Jebusites in the land of Judah, the Canaanites in the land of Ephraim, and then the Canaanites in the land of Manasseh were still there. They didn't fully drive them out. Um, 
could have been that they were kind of like, well, they're not that bad. They're not that big of a deal. We'll just let them stay. We've been fighting a lot. You know, we'll just let them stay. It could have been that they couldn't get them to move and get them out there. We're not exactly sure why they couldn't push them out, but they let them stay, which ended up having consequences down the road. And we see that when we get to judges. We see that um, sort of that, they didn't intermarry, but definitely the influence of these Canaanites remaining in the land negatively influenced the people of Israel. And we see some consequences of that down the road. So this was a failure to remove these pagan people completely. And it caused a lot of problems for the nation later on. So those are, again, interesting things to note. It's like, oh, we got our land, but there's just a little bit of these Jebusites left. We'll leave them alone. We'll let them kind of stay there. But it's, it's going to, you know, not work out as well in the future. Okay, chapter 20, the cities of refuge. So in this new land, God wanted to establish a new type of society, right? Um, the Canaanites had been living pagan gods, worshiping all these false idols, all this kind of stuff, and he wanted to establish sort of this system of justice, a way to live differently. And so he established six cities of refuge. The cities of refuge were spread out a, a, among the territory, and they were places where somebody who accidentally killed someone to go where they wouldn't be avenged by the victim's family. They couldn't be touched in a city of refuge. And those cities of refuge were run by the Levites, the priests. And they were really a place that the, the person that was waiting, that had accidentally killed somebody, could wait for a fair trial before they were just you know, avenged. And so it was really a great area, a great opportunity for this new sort of justice. It prevented injustice. It was a safe place that they had um, for fair trial until they, could, or until they could get a fair trial. So those are six cities set aside. That's what verse uh, chapter 20 talks about. And then chapter 21 are all the cities and pasture lands given to the Levites. The Levites are the priests, as we know. They don't get a whole section of land like the rest of these guys. There are 48 total cities given to the Levites. I don't know, I'm going to just pretend that they're up here in certain spots. But imagine, you know, 48 of these cities. And they're, they're, they're close enough to everybody in the land that you could get there within a day. So you may not be able to get to the tabernacle very quickly. It might take days and days and days. But you would go there for feasts, big celebrations, things. But you still needed to encounter the Lord through these priests, you had to get to the Levites. So these cities, 48 cities were scattered about and they were at least a day's away. I mean, close enough that they could be at least a day away. And so that's how they were established and that's why they were established in that way. So those priests were called to serve the Lord, serve the people, and they just got what was given to them. They got some pasture lands for that and they um, had to be scattered so that people could get to a Levitical city quickly. So that's kind of where they were. So that's all of chapter um, 21. The best part of this whole nine chapters is right here. Are you ready? Are you excited? Okay, chapter 21 verses 43 through 45. Listen to this. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. The promise is fulfilled. Like, 
That is good news. Everything that they've been waiting for all came to pass. Every word that God had promised and given to Moses for the people had come to pass. There was rest. After all this turmoil, this waiting, this fighting Jericho, this getting into the land, finally they were settled. It is the best thing to see God's promises fulfilled. As we as humans right now, we know God's promises have been fulfilled, not only through scripture. We know that because of Christ. We know that because of Christ's death on the cross, his resurrection. We know that that was God's promise. We've seen that fulfilled, and yet we still wait for his full revelation. We wait for God's full promises to be revealed. Wouldn't you love to be able to read today, it all came to pass and they rested. That's what we're waiting for. That's the hope that we have in the future. And that's the hope that these guys had as they had waited their whole lives for this, this moment. And so we, in this now and not yet, we know that Christ has come and died for us, risen from the grave. We still have to wait for the next. And I cannot wait for the day where it's written, and Jesus returned and all was redeemed. And now it's, it's, it's the promise has been fulfilled. I mean, I get chills thinking about it. It's like, what a relief to these people, you know, these broken people who have done their best to follow the Lord and they've messed up and they've found, they're finally in their spot. Okay. And they can rest. I love that part. So our last chapter that we're going to talk about is 22. They rested for a minute and then it got bad again. Um, <laughs> as broken people, we see that we're not always uh, great at communicating. There's a lot of misunderstandings in who we are as people. And so the last chapter, chapter 22, is this great story of misunderstanding. This is like so interesting. Okay, I'm going to kind of illustrate it over here. So work with me here. So they got done. Everyone got settled. Phew, they're all good. Everyone's checked off. They got their lands. They're going to settle them. Well, now these ones that were in the east, the half of Manasseh, Gad and Reuben, they needed to go back to their land. They'd been in the west fighting for, you know, Israel, getting everybody settled, and now it was time for them to go back into their land, cross back over the Jordan towards the east. So they're on their way. They're excited to get back home. And as they cross over the Jordan, they put an altar up, an altar of witness, they call it. And they build this altar, and they want it, in, they want it so that their kids and grandkids would remember that they are part of all of this. They don't want people later on to be confused. Oh, no, no, those aren't our people. Those are not Israelites. They wanted to remember, sort of like the memorial stones that were placed when they crossed the Jordan back in chapter 1 or 2. No, it's chapter 1 um, or 3. Anyway, um, sorry. So they wanted to remember that they were part of this bigger group, that they were truly Israelites, that they worshiped the same God. Well, guess what? <coughs> the Western tribes were like, Oh my goodness, what did they just do? They, the Western tribes, thought that the Eastern tribes had gone against God, had built an altar that they were not allowed to build, put burnt offerings on it, sacrifices on it, which they were not allowed to do because all that's happening at Shiloh, that can't happen anywhere else. That can only happen here. And so the Western tribes are like erupting out of anger. And they literally say, I don't remember which verse it is here, um, it's verse, let's see, um, 12 of chapter 22, and when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. So this whole western side is like, uh-uh, you can't do that. Let's go kill them. <laughs> Let's go make war against our own people. And it was a misunderstanding. Can you imagine if they'd gone and made war on a misunderstanding? 
So they come and they're ready to fight. Phineas is the son of Eleazar. He's the new priest. Um, he goes and he's like, and he brings a representative from each of the tribes in the western area. They go to the eastern tribes. They're like, what are you doing? Why did you build this altar? You're not allowed to do this. I can't believe it. And what do the eastern tribes say? No, no, that's not what we meant. We didn't mean to, we weren't trying to build an altar to God. We were just trying to build a witness, an opportunity for our grandsons and our great-grandsons to remember that we're a part of you. Please don't hurt us. We really, if that was our intention, you should kill us for sure because we, you know, I get it. We're not supposed to do that. And they were trying to clear up the misunderstanding. Thank goodness they did. Phineas, the priest, and the rest of the leaders said, okay, we believe them. They're good. We're fine. And they all lived happily, not ever after, as we know. But at least they sort of came to a, um, an agreement, a conclusion. They were able to uh, sort of see eye to eye. And they, they left the altar of witness so that the generations that would come remind, would remind everyone that the altar, or that they all worship the same Lord. And it was all good in their eyes. The last verse of chapter 22 says, uh, The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar of witness for, they said, it was a witness between us that the Lord is God. So they're all part of the same group. Phew! Crisis averted. <laughs> it would have been bad. But based on how many misunderstandings have you had in your life that could have led to war? I mean, that's like pretty dramatic. But that happens in our lives, right? I mean, like, oh, we were just doing a simulation. We didn't really mean to throw off those nuclear bombs. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm pretending. But, like, what is it that has been miscommunicated in your own lives um, that has led to disagreement and conflict and strife? And what have you assumed about other people that's not true because you've, you've not asked or you've not thought about something? So how does this sort of impact us as broken humans, again, we're fearful. The Western tribes were fearful that the Eastern were doing the wrong thing, breaking the rules, and yet the Western tribes are like, oh, that's not what we meant. I'm sorry that you thought that. Please don't kill us. And thank goodness they didn't. Phew. So that's nine chapters that we just spread, sped through in, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, woo! Um, it's a lot. I do encourage you in your, like, in your small groups, to pick out pieces that really stand out to you. Again, the, the overarching themes, the broad brushstrokes are God's faithfulness, God's promise fulfilled, it coming to fruition, the rest that they received when they got into their land. Think about, put yourself in the position, what would it have been like to, been, to have been Caleb, to have been the Joseph, the house of Joseph going, oh, is this our land? You know, um, putting yourself in the, the position of the Eastern tribes. Well, they got to go back over east. Do they feel left out? Do they feel like they're not a part of it? Is that why they built the altar of witness? Because they wanted to feel a part of things? Putting yourself in the position of these people and thinking about, yes, this is hard to apply necessarily to our everyday lives. We are not there. We do not see all of this. But it's incredibly applicable in a lot of ways to how we live as people in harmony with one another and as people that follow one God. Um, and how all of this then transpires later on. We know the northern and southern kingdoms and all the exiles and all the stuff that they encounter later. This is the beginning of setting all of that up. And so then we can see how it all sort of transpires. So next week, um, Bob will look at 20, uh, chapter 23. And again, I'm sorry, you don't have questions right now. And then f the final week on April, is it 7th? I think that April 7th is the final week that you'll meet is the last chapter.
So you have a lot to look forward to. The last two chapters are very, very good. Um, so hopefully this, you can kind of dig in with your groups a little bit more about um, what you found here. But I'm so grateful that you all have let me come and share with you. I'm so grateful to have been here um, and just grown with you as we study scripture together. Are there any questions before we dismiss? Yes. Oh, that's a great question. I hadn't thought about that. Um, I'd have to look up what significance that might have. I think it was kind of like he, was, he had finally gotten his land, and he's settling in, and it's happening. But I'm not exactly sure. I'd have to look that up. Do you, does anyone know? Did somebody say something? Yeah, he's, yeah he's, he's getting up in years. He's led them all throughout. Um, but he isn't. What's that? He's done. He's tired. He's done his job. No, I don't know for sure, but I could look that up for you and see. Yeah, if he mediated. Well, and we see that Joshua and Eleazar had been working as the two of them together to give all these allotments out. And now Eleazar's son, Phineas, is the one involved with, these East, with, this, with this disaster. The, priest, the high priest's job. The high priest's job to mediate. There we go. So, so Joshua sort of is stepping back. And again, he's old. Phineas is the younger priest, the new priest, and, so it's, and he's, he's mediating um, with them. So that's a great question. Yes? Yes, they started to actually build cities and settle. But fortified. Yes, right. Um, and, you know, again, depending on where they were, it, it depended on how it looked, but that was their goal, to drive these people out and really start to fortify those cities. Yeah. Any other questions? Great. Well, enjoy your time with your groups. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. If you want to come look at the maps that I have, you may have them in your own Bible. Um, there's tons of them on Google. Uh, that you can look up, just m maps of the 12 uh, tribes' land according to Joshua, and you can see it all. But it really does help bring it to life to be able to visualize where it all was. That helps me. I'm a visual learner. So um, let us pray, and then we'll dismiss. God, our Father, we thank you for your love for us, and that through your word we're able to see your promises, um, that you have been true to your promises. You've fulfilled your promises, not only then, but we can have hope that you will now. So in our brokenness, in, our, in the world in which we live, we have pain and fear and we're exhausted. And we are ready for your kingdom to come. We're ready for um, Jesus's return and for the redemption of this world. We're ready for all to be at rest um, under your kingdom in your glory. We thank you, Lord, that we, in the meantime, get to share your love with others, get to point others to your word and grow as your disciples as we learn and um, feast on your word. So God, um, be with these groups as they discuss further and help them to really see what you're teaching them personally, what you're teaching us as a church, and what you're teaching us as just a larger body of Christ followers. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your love and for your grace upon us. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.